Welcome to the Making Waves podcast, season two, baby, um, coming to you live. In this particular episode, um, episode one, season two, we are talking with um, Bay of Plenty local James Ormsby. Um, so he is passionate about drawing. Um, there's so much he has done and so much wisdom he has to offer so i'm pleased to bring you this particular episode today so um stay tuned and enjoy So welcome to the Making Waves podcast, a podcast that aims to make waves in the ocean that is your mind, speaking with artists from all over, and today we have the master James Ormsby. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. <laughs> How's it going? Good. Good. Yeah, cool. very good. And yeah. um, so to open... Do you want to um, tell us a little bit about yourself? Good. Uh, born and raised in the Waikato and uh, up to Manipoto, um, uh, Tainui and Tiaroa through Natipikia, Lake Rotuiti. Uh, so far as uh, all the Ormsby's Whakapapa back to South Kafia. Uh, Raiko Nui Marae there and uh, my relations came up through uh, Rotorua, Lake Rotuiti, Tapua Haruru Marae, the moors there and then up over the Kaimais. My great-grandfathers were running bullocks over the Kaimais and so I'm part of the Bay of Plenty Ormsby's but we all go back to the Kafia. Um, raised and somewhat educated in Hamilton. Uh, Studied overseas in Melbourne, got my bachelor's at Melbourne University, master's at RMIT, uh, married four kids, um, came back to New Zealand in the, oh, spent time in Aussie, um, with my kids over there, came back to uh, New Zealand in the mid 90s and fell in again with Bucknan when he was establishing uh, Tawaranga Aotearoa uh, just become legally Wananga's were just made legal tertiary institutions like politics and universities and Rumawetere uh, Awanui Rangi and uh, Rokawa were just setting up and Buck was setting up the art school and he wanted someone to work there with the first diploma at Takura Toy Māori School of Arts. So it was kind of cool, came back, fell into an interesting, well, a powerful, powerful, groundbreaking educational initiative for New Zealand. So I was blessed to be engaged with that for a few years. 
based in Taumuru at head office. Eugene Kara and I taught there, got, wrote the first degree in Māori art with Jacob Scott, Kahutoi Tikaraka, Kiriti Rotangata and myself, with four of us wrote that degree. Maungukura Toi, which has gone through through machinations over the years. I was, we wrote the original back in 2003. Uh, so I had been involved in education and my own art. I went to art school in Melbourne. And then uh, beside that, I had my art practice running. And I show out of White Space and Paul Nash. Um, yeah, over the last few years. Yeah, and uh, I have a bit of the one in there. Oh, I have a bit of the one in I was employee number 84. Um, I think I've got over 5,000 now, but I was, I left the one in 2006, seven, around about then, and um, been teaching at politics and lecturing around the place and doing my thing in my art and live here at Mount Maunganui. Beautiful place to live. Stuff. It's mm. tough. Yeah, yes, I love it over here. I've always been in and out of here, so it's nice to be. Lived here briefly in the 80s as a young, young fella and good to be back as an old fella. Mm. Mm. And um, so most of your practices are um, drawing-based? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, um, talk to us about that particular medium for you. Yeah. <coughs> well... I do do a little bit of print. I majored in print and uh, woodcraft at Melbourne Uni with my bachelor's, but it's always been um, drawing. And I suppose it boils down to that. It's always been drawing, <laughs> doodling at school through to making a folio, through to going to art school. And when I went to art school, I just happened by going to art school <laughs> at the time. Uh, the, there was a very, some very good lecturers in drawing there. And of course, you're impressionable. And uh, my drawing tutor at Melbourne Uni was Godwin Bradbeer. He was a master draftsman and there was uh, Palmer there and a few others. And uh, I worked with them over the holidays as a student making money drawing machinery and Factories is better than working at the supermarket because I have a wife and kids. And go back into the life drawing classes and be a student throughout the year. So I was mentored and hung around the drawing studios and got into the practice of drawing the, like that. I do painting a little bit, but not when I get with drawing I'll have a doodle with the paints I struggle with painting I struggle with everything else and I've just sort of stuck with drawing because of that early experience in art school and in life and do you think that um, the foundation in drawing has like affected how you approached writing that degree that you say that you've oh, that's an interesting question yeah yeah oh yeah definitely Good question. Yeah, it's haunted me through drawing practices as, as runs through lots of other life engagements. 
And upon reflection, yes, yeah, yeah. I think it, well, it did actually. I, I can remember being uh, at, at massive hui with all sorts of art educators, um, Jonathan, Manafuoke, through to all sorts of very powerful co people, Fred Graham, all of us in rooms, big hui for days sometimes. And my job was to draw the minutes on the whiteboard. <laughs> and I'd go through about six whiteboards of diagrams and mind maps and notes and scribbles and doodles, taking photos and then wiping it off again and taking another one. And they would be engaged in the records to add memory to what we've been talking about. Yes, I suppose I drew in meetings even. Yeah, you're right. And um, I can distinctly remember uh, Jacob Scott coming with that whole idea of the mo- the original Manga Kuratoi. I'm getting into a long corridor now, but it was based, it was philosophically based on, uh, well, obviously, second chance learners came up with Māori to meeting it to me. But structurally, the written document that faced the government that got money, so you had to respect that, put petrol in the tank, um, was written like a skeleton. Our whole year's assessment was put onto one A4 piece of paper even. There were basically just four papers throughout the year. Very, each paper, everything was on one A4 piece of paper. It was very skeletal so that each shooter, kayak or poak or whatever in the area in their he would add meat to that. Mm. And I remember writing the document and it was very thin, physically thin, and wondering whether it would get accreditation and it got it, <clears throat> which was quite impressive in itself, I think. Jacob Scott was a master at uh, that kind of thing, administrative planning and I was able to witness that and engage in it in my own drawing practice and do diagrams and maps and mind maps and help visualize what was philosophically talked about by people from all over the Mutu and um, yeah and I think it was a very cool program in the sense that it was relevant to the Whakapapara where it was delivered because of that. So it wasn't like, you know, some guys in Taumutu are writing this Māori art degree for every other Māori to follow through, which would be wrong. Be good for Taumutu. <laughs> so, you know, so it was written like produce a body of work, you know, yeah. one sentence. Yeah. And this was pretty revolutionary back in 2002 and three. Yeah, it was. Just starting mining and just doing education, tertiary education was going through massive upheavals, pretty mm. bankrupt now. It was going through pretty big upheavals at the time. So it was, it was, it was a pretty special time in my life to engage in something I thought was quite historical uh, in culture, especially in education, and employ what I could add to it, which was a bit of doodling, I suppose, yeah. And during that time, um, what, how did, I guess, that historical event influence what you were making at that time? For your own practice. Yeah, well, it, well, it, it did. I remember, uh, well, I was in, I was immersed in things Maori, te Maori, but I, 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 I wasn't brought up there. I'm not a Maori kid. I wasn't brought up 
in things Maria stood down corridor Maria, but um, fluently at least, anywhere really. But I was immersed in it. So I was a fly on the wall. I was blessed to be a fly on the wall in some amazing corridor. Some of it washed completely over me, which I enjoyed as well. And uh, all lots of subtle reasons, but I also it was privy to some pretty cool things that made me curious. And, um, and I believe that curiosity is key to the start of anything really um, creative. Eh? You've got to be curious, ask questions, you know, mm-hmm. doubting all these sort of wonder, wondrous things mm-hmm. make you curious. And I was hearing things and thinking, so I'd doodle with that, and then I would play with that cynically because I'm a very cynical person and use a bit of dark Scottish humour. And I and I was always one for expanding uh, marks and its symbology. I was never satisfied with pure symbology. You know, Mangalpare means this. You know, cool fi fi, the whole lectern of cool fi fi definitions, the whole dictionary of it. One of my first shows that sold out actually in Willing in, in, in Art Space was a whole lot of photocopies of Cool Fi Fi designs from uh Maori art book by Hamilton with all the numbers messed around with. And uh, I was quite impressed that Sparkers were coming in buying these photocopies, basically, because I was so shocked at, like, 10th generation handouts of photocopies where even the text was wobbling along the the page because it had been photocopied by so many tutors over so many decades as everyone just looked to Maori Art Hamilton for any core fi-fi design in any definition with no understanding of, well, let me mention... Mango Pare oh, represents the hammerhead shark. To me, to me, to me, it looks like hammerhead shark, but it must be a hammerhead shark. Full stop. No, no mention of Te Koti and the fighting like a hammerhead shark and those deeper esoteric definitions rather than the symbolic ones. Mm-hmm. So I've always been impressed with that. So I doodle with that, and I, my doodling was drawing. Mm-hmm. And then, then I was lucky in this, well, not blessed in the sense that I was able to add my technique and aesthetic from outside in Melbourne back into the context of Te Ao Māori and Ko Whai Whai and symbology. I thought that was adding an interesting new mix of petrol to that equation. You know? mm. Because I think a lot of it beforehand was very graphic slick, which develops into a whole genre nowadays of that Māori graphic work which is cool, but it becomes very mannerist after decades. Mm. Everyone's doing in the manner of Sandy Etsy. Everyone's doing in the manner of Māori art history. Everyone's uh, moko designers in the manner of, yeah, you wouldn't dare do a wobbly curve, you know. So it's very slick. And I remember often one of the first questions we'd ask our art students, uh, our toy students, you generally, is a dot a koru? You know, just leave it on the board for a year. <laughs> Massive arguments about it, you know. Those sort of things. Mm-hmm. So I'd like using dots for quarters, across a quarter. All these sort of interesting visual challenges. Selwyn Muru once called, called me and others uh, Nati Fidiki, the freaks that come in from outside. Mm. And uh, 
This is a funny guy, Selwyn. I had a lot of time with Selwyn. He used to sit around pages quoting, wanting to funny poetry and all sorts of stuff. He was a great guy. And he, he called us Nati Fidiki, young Māori trained overseas outside of Te Ao Māori, coming back into the Renaissance in the 70s and 80s and observing this whole phenomenon of Māori tanga, at the time it was called. And he'd come in as an artist trained outside with all that luggage and baggage and experience and technique and bringing it in with a new, a new fuel you know, to that, uh, to that, to that normal customary practices or new practices. Yeah. Mm. So it's always a little to the left. So that's why I did a bit of Maori art, basically. I suppose it's a long answer. <laughs> and so, yeah. what what kind of like philosophical ideas did you come to with that work, and how did that feed into the other works? Well, I've never been one for philosophy. Never? I've worked very visceral, very gut. Okay. Just worked very romantically on feelings and emotions and aesthetics. Yeah. I've never really been uh, engaged philo- with philosophy much. Okay. So that's a warning I should flag first. Mm-hmm. So I'll throw in a few of them. My ocular bias from a non-Cartesian perspective has never really seduced me. My bias, oculated, my visual bias is, is, is bound up in my own aesthetic, the way I look at things. And it comes from a very, my, my mother was a librarian at Hamilton Public Library. And, I was, and as a young teenager and kid going to high school and intermediate, I spent hours after school hanging out in the library, uh, waiting for mum to finish work to go home at five. And, um, uh, food was involved <laughs> so you do that with your mind. but in doing as I reflect on it now it's other interviews too but I think I built up uh, innately an, an, an aesthetic eye because I'd always loved art and I'd look at all the art first thing I went to the art uh, to the library I'd go to the big book section and grab all the art books and look at. so I had a very keen awareness of sound composition the way things are supposed to look and architecture and paintings and drawings and film magazines, the whole place, the whole, you know, Dewey 7, 7.45 section was my shelves at the library. So I always had a, I had a very good sense of what was good and what was bad visually. Are a wonderful philosophical And so I, my steps are curiosity and good composition, and then I add on to it from there. I forgot the original question. What was the original question? Why well, you don't look at oh, the philosophical thing. You don't look at philosophical oh, yeah, things. You're right. a, vis- a visceral. Yeah, yeah, visceral. So I'm coming from the guts, you know, and I, yeah. and I just, oh, it doesn't look right. Well, when I'm doing so, ah, no, it needs a complementary colour. I, I, I don't really question the philosophies behind it. I look at the, I'm very surface. <laughs> Object, you know, artifact is everything. I suppose because I'm earning a living from it too, so I have that caveat over my art practice, you know. It's got to look good to make money, bottom line, you know. Never mind all the philosophy, and I can add stories to it, and that can seduce the buyer, and if I'm interested in it, it's all lovely, lovely. But either they can I hock it off to pay the bills. Mm. <laughs> yeah, 
you know. <laughs> so that's bottom line. So that's my philosophy, I suppose, at the end of the day. So you're compromising all the time to get that you achieve that, and you're trying not to compromise too much. And if you like to think you're 80%, 90% uncompromised, you're doing pretty well, you know. <laughs> you're not prostituting yourself too much. And, 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 and that comes with a whole ball of wax of respect and for the manner of the story and the fucker popper of what you're playing with and what are you revealing and not revealing and what are you hiding and what should be hidden and what should be revealed to make money, to survive, to pay the bills and pay the rent, mm. which, which you've got to do. Because I'm not, I always said I'm, I'm an artist who teaches, I'm not a teacher. Mm. I'm a firm believer. I'm, I'm, I, don't, I make no pretense. Although I have a Bachelor of Education as well, I don't, I don't profess to be a teacher at all. I always tell my students, you know, you're not going to get PC around me. You're not going to get bugger all pastoral help. <laughs> I'm, a te- I'm an artist, right? If I upset you or kill you, know? <laughs> I'm not going to putty you. And if you start telling me long, sad stories, I'm, inside I'm going asleep. I really don't give a flying flick because I'm a pretty egotistical artist. You know, it's all about me. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I warn my students at the beginning of the year, I'm an artist teacher. Very much that I think the artist... Um like role is it's quite a selfish role like you can't be yeah yeah it's exactly. just pretty like exactly. if you're an artist there's aspects of you that need to be egotistical and selfish I think yeah I think there's an amount of that I don't know how big or small it should be and yeah. the outcomes are good and bad but um, it is it has to be present for some reason it has to be present I don't I haven't really looked into the philosophy of all that too much but um, yeah ego is a, is a thing isn't it and it's a very big thing in art. Yeah, Artists. Yeah. yeah, so philosophically, I, I, I just shoot from the hip and trust my instinct and cross fingers. And most of the time, it seems to hit the mark at the exhibition end. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what? Are you working on anything at the moment? Yeah, 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 doing a few things, puddling around. Um, I've got a show coming up at uh, White Space in a few months um, with Greer Twist and a few old geriatric sculptures and myself, sculptors in Auckland at White Space. And um, of course, everything went a bit sideways this year. I was planning to do the Melbourne Art Fair, Sydney Art Fair, go up with Paul Nash and all that. Of course, that's all gone to the left. Mm-hmm. Um, Māori Art show coming up next year. Auckland City Art Gallery with Nigel Burrell showing me big tafio drawings. Um, yeah, building up bodies of work and see how the dust settles post pandemic. Yeah, were you very it's a different world, eh? Hey? So you know, <laughs> were you very productive over COVID? Was that good for your practice? Uh, yes and no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was all right. One step backwards, two forwards. Yeah can be like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Done that. Got some new new bodies of work underway. Got three three sort of things boiling away at the moment. Mm. So I'll see how this show goes at White Space. It seems like the world's coming back to the new normal and slowly and um, they're actually having openings, I think, in a few months, we'd like to hope. They're getting 100 at the group now, so. Yeah. <clears throat> White Space are actually having physical exhibitions in a gallery. Uh, so that's a good good thing for me. 
<laughs> as an artist who tries to earn money off that deal okay and are you teaching um at the moment no I've got offers to teach a few politics, but I've turned them all down so far. Too old and grumpy right now. <laughs> My trouble. Um, what's your take on, um, I guess, as a tutor with the, your history in like drawing, how do you approach this kind of new era of new media with your students? What are, you, what are yeah. your thoughts on it? Um, well, I'm old and grumpy, so I, I, I always put up the fight that... <laughs> Drawing's everything, all right? <laughs> so, I, you know, even Goldman Bradley and my drawing master won't even consider you're an artist until he's seen your life drawing folder. And you've done a thousand life drawings, then you're qualified to even speak to him. You know what I, mean? yeah. I sound like he's a grumpy old bastard, which he isn't. But, but, um, but uh, I, th- I think uh, when you're born, even, someone slaps you <laughs> and you draw breath. Uh, that's you know, kupu, I know, but but why did they use the word draw? <laughs> why do they say he breathes, he lives, or she lives? You know? Drawing is is fundamental. It's caused enough suicides, deaths, divorces, had millennia of practice, and we'll see how far this technology goes. I don't think it's caused enough suicides yet. I think it's got to stand the test of time, and I think. And I believe, although I don't believe everything I think, but I believe strongly that uh, Photoshop, etc., cetera, uh, all the digital arts, all that voodoo, digital voodoo, I think you can, well, I can, and I know some patrons can, if that's important to artists, patrons, it may not be to some digital artists, can tell whether that digital work is standing on a base of drawing. A lot of young digital artists I see at art schools, I was taught last was up at North to get fun. Hey, we're going to move North. But we decided to stay here for family reasons with my brother and such. Uh, I was telling the graphics students here, I could tell which ones could draw or not draw by looking at their digital work. And I was kind of 80, 90% correct in it. You can tell the ones who are lazy just clip art and apply uh, apps and fiddle away. And there's there's a weird X factor that kicks in with a student who can draw really well. And I'm saying basic drawing, I'm talking graphite on paper. Uh, Can draw really well and what their digital work is like can draw really well and what their paintings are like, can draw really well and what their sculptures are like. I've yet to meet a very good sculptor who can't draw. Yeah. Every sculptor I know are just great drawers. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, there's always exceptions, of course. But. And so I drive that co-popper, that drawing is fundamental to any art school. Yeah, I, I can't believe art schools don't do life drawing, some art schools now, they, and they don't call themselves out. Well, creatives is the latest move, my art student. I'm proud of being an art student. So much to the point where I used to give our whakapapa of student, master, teacher, all the way back to Leonardo da Vinci from me, 17 generations through the French drawing schools, ateliers, through from, from Buckman, right, right the way 
back through the Gordon Tovey, Richardson, Wellington Polytech. Richardson was trained in, in, the, in an Italian atelier, back through the French ateliers, right back to Raphael and Leonardo da Vinci. Wow, what a fuck And then you chuck on the word creative, it sounds far too trendy and fashionable. It's only been around a few years, like I said. It hasn't stood the test of, of centuries of practice by masters. I think if I think if the creatives, if there's a few master creatives after a few centuries, it can be worthy to be called master like drawings, you know, master. sound drawing practice. I think is key, basically, at the end of the day. It'll, it'll, you know, like I used to draw with um, uh, Kevin Palmer and Godwin Bambi, and they, and they noticed me as an art student, and they came to me and said later on, that's oh, gee, James, what do you know? I was, oh, bloody, looking for a job, of course, got to pay the bills. Oh, come with me, you know, it's 20 bucks an hour. You walk around and draw machinery. And at Box Hill in Melbourne was his massive paper um, making tissue, making toilet papers and tissues, massive paper making factories, like, oh, the size of rugby paddocks, massive buildings, big filters and tanks. And government, and these big corporations got like massive tax discounts if they trained their staff. And of course, half of their staff and people were single second language, migrants, Italians, Greeks, Asians, and they needed handbooks of instructions. This is 1980s, pre-internet. So they'd pay artists to walk around factories drawing artists' viewpoint, you know, uh, the, the operator's viewpoint of the machine, not a technical, because the, the operator just wanted to know what button to press and, what filter to change and pull out. He didn't need to have the technical drawing, he wanted to sort of see it. So I got paid 20 bucks an hour just to walk around with the sketchbook. <laughs> you know, ballpoint pens, taking photos with a little Kodak, waiting a week to get back from the canvas. <laughs> just, um, just doing that sort of stuff versus working at a at, a, at, a, at, a, at the Laidlaw supermarket, Thomastown, somewhere for like 10, like, like, like for 10 bucks an hour. I was getting paid big money to draw. Mm. So, you know, even at that level as an art student, I, I, it's great. Uh, and and, and those amazing uh, drawings were produced. Um, yeah, so, so right away, I was engaged in illustration. I was doing a lot of illustration, graphic work. Now, who are your biggest like influences to your artworks? Nowadays, now. Ah, good question. Oh, there's heaps of uh, new people overseas. As far as drawing practice or as far as... Just like oh, artist, art practice. Oh, oh general wide artists. Because I was just going to say, I've always just stuck with Annie Agoni and Godwin Bradbeer, uh, Paul Rigo, uh, a few of those sort of old masters. But uh, nowadays, oh, yeah, I mean, I always sing the praises of Kitty Amataipa, you know, the whole new 3D digital print stuff he's doing. Plus, he's beautifully humble. Um, which is amazing and you know I just think the guy's going to be God in years to come as far as I'm concerned and if yeah, he's not cool. and it's great that he's hardly recognised now like most gods <laughs> hopefully he won't be martyred but he'll be he'll be recognised I think as a change from stone to steel mm. like he's really taken it digital 
Mm. Pure played around with new materials like Rangi Kipper, all the rest of them are just fantastic craftsmen, you know. But he's really jumped to the complete left, you know. The whole notion of produ a Māori producing Māori work without even touching it. Yeah. Being additive. These are totally left practices from the usual artifact uh, notion of producing Māori art. I've got to make a nice curve. <laughs> I make the curve. Yeah, <laughs> I you, subtract the wood. Whatever. And you can see the, the hand of the artist is... Yeah. 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 So, you know, Eugene Carr is another one has influenced me in my drawing too. There's a lot of, you know, I think Eugene has that um, aesthetic eye I've talked about. A lot of Māori artists don't have that. There's an X factor of aesthetics that make things beautiful. These are bad words, I know, very loaded words, but, you know, you can put a koru on a piece of paper and make it look nice, and you can put a wonky spiral on a piece of paper and it looks doesn't look right. I'm talking size even, not not the curve even, you know. There's, there's weird aesthetics that go on. So Eugene, Kiriyama, oh, yeah, all through God, of course. Um, just so minimal, so stripped down, we're prone to over-accessorise. Māori art is so prone to over-accessorise. You know, all through just strips it down minimally. Oh, Osh. John Walsh's paintings um, again because it's nudged to the left a bit, you know, and the graphic work that mannerist work you see, which is fine. You know, I work very closely with Sandy Adset for for decades, you know, and know him very well. He knows me very well too, so much so he would never trust me to run a class of his. <laughs> but you've got that whole mannerist style, which any culture should have. Everyone paints in the manner of Sandy. Mm. which is like old Renaissance masters. Everyone painted in the whole manner art movement. We're just reflecting culture, that whole um, imaginative order. <clears throat> and Māori imaginative order is no different than any other culture's imaginative order. You have your highs and lows and your masters and mannerists after the masters. That's how I see it anyway. But I think there's the breakout ones like Kiriyama, Eugene to a point because he's doing... He does bronze work as well. Got a really nice aesthetic. Oh, um, Brett Graham, of course. Fred Graham, what a gentleman, loving man. Um, Lionel Grant, all those Nati Pikiaf, Fakairo Tohunga, Tohunga Fakairo, Nati Pikiaf. Very good, all representing. <laughs> those guys have just got that X factor, right? You don't see them tightly, but you see them. You see them tiano, right? It's a kind of a. They've done up for the nightclub, eh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, bloody, bloody Mike Tiger. They're on about ropes anymore on that somewhere in my body, but, uh, you know, they're just, they're still down at the shopping centre in the morning doing their shopping, you know. <clears throat> so there's a kind of an, an aesthetic there in Fakairo that's interesting as well. <clears throat> um, uh, well, gee, I've just done males, eh? Made all the females. Oh, uh, just all the females. I've just done all the females invisible. Oh, no, you crucify me. Uh, no, uh, well, it's female. Oh, you know, Alexine Curtis, you know, oh, Kahutoi Tikanoa, just great weavers. I just, just, they've got that X factor that they, you know, you can weave a basket and you can weave a basket. Right? Mm. 
just uh, is quality there. Um, uh, oh, oh, from Rod Whitty as well. Uh, names escape me. Anyway, is <laughs> um, painters. Andrea Hopkins, I like her, she's up north. She does, she, again, she does some nice paintings to the left, all the uh, Star Gossage, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of Aroha Gossage's work's really interesting. Um, it's a terrible word. No, no, Aroha's work's, uh, I like it. It's, 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 it's kind of a refinement of Star's work. Um, well, I think anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, there's lots of female artists. Mm. Oh, Hedia Anderson, one of my students. I think she's just rising. She's just master's painter now. She's doing so well. She had a girl experience. Yeah, from the one, one of the original Taumuru girls wandered in, oh, you know, that? off the streets, literally. Uh, Rose r- risen so well, got a master's in from Wycliffe now. You know, yeah, yeah, there's lots of young ex-students I really like and um, they've really developed really well. Um, yeah, Hedy, Hedy's a great painter. Check out some of her work. Mm-hmm. Challenging compositions, interesting viewpoints on Marae. Not your, not your mannerist Māori painting at all. She'll be um, recognised in the future and is recognised. She shows that at Melbourne, to Melbourne. Oh, does she? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. Does very well. She has a really cool artist at the moment. Yeah, Hedia Anderson. Oh, there's probably a bunch of time. Too old to know any of the younger ones. <laughs> Can you talk to us? Yourself. About... Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Looking down the barrel of the camera, fiddling with your hair. Those sort of uh, Amy Teratana, you know, the, you know, just here's my tits and here's my flinging um, tiki, you know? Never mind the Victorian bodice, you know? I'm a folk dancer and here it is. You know, those sort of photographs? Just. Challenging, you know, not your customary practice, you know, I'm a respectful wahini. Well, I can be disrespectful too, for a lot of things. I'll be disrespectful to customary practice. Ticky, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah, Amy's great. Uh, oh. And then you've got all your academics behind you, Nahui Tao Kotoku, this great, amazing woman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Smith all there. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you give us any like insights to creating a sustainable practice that lasts the longevity, I guess? Sustainable, yeah, those are key words nowadays, eh? Yeah. Beautiful. Music to my ears, sustainable. <laughs> Hopefully capitalism isn't so sustainable. Well, if you're capitalist like me, <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, advice. Yes, this is, these are good questions. So. If I, if I tell you now on this podcast, I'll have to kill everyone. It's opposition. You've got to be, you've got to be, I suppose you've got to be intentioned. Yep. Let's go from the beginning. I used to tell us, nothing worse than a student saying, I want to get a degree because they have to be, be the first in my family to get one or, or I want to be famous. These are, these are terrible things. Mm. Well, you have your ego. You don't have a Trumpian one like that. So you, you try to. Feign humility, at least. And I think in feigning humility, I'd go through the steps of, first of all, get your intention right so that you know what paddock or field you're going to go into and you're practicing 
authentically in that field or honestly in that field. Jacob Scott used to say, I said to him, what do you think of authenticity is? And he said, I think it's being honest, honestly reflecting and engaging the community that you face. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, yeah, if art you're talking about, that big word, if you want to be an art practice that's sustainable. Number one, draw. If you can't draw, you're not a bloody artist in my book, so draw. Uh, that gives you a visual language. No, it gives you a visual grammar that will st- structure your corridor so it can be understood and not misunderstood or ignored. Misunderstanding and being ignored is a disaster for sustainability, obviously. Unless you kill yourself and become mythical, but that's a bit dramatic. And only one out of 10,000 probably do that. So I think, first of all, you've got to learn how to draw. You've got to want to make a mark, a meaningful mark to you, whatever that is, abstract, figurative, big, small, in mud, whatever the mark is. So you've got to know how to make marks or draw. You've got a, a second or close second would be get your intention right so you know whether you're going to do painting, digital, sculpture, what field of practice are you going to do art to make money to live or are you going to live in an institution and teach and be protected and supported by other financial ways so that you can be supposedly completely free to do your art practice, whatever your notion takes you, whatever your curiosity takes you, because you're free from any financial burden or yoke or stage. So you've got to get your your intention right and your drawings right. And I always uphold this young guy, and I'll say his name, Jesse Lewis. You can Google him. You'll see him in the credits of most Hollywood movies now. I was at the Wananga in Taumuru, and Jesse would, he was a son of a dear friend I had at the Wananga, a great educator, David Lewis Welshman. He'd come across from Taumuru art class, high school, across the paddock into the Wananga and show me his terrible cartoon drawings. And he was failing at art, but he had a great mind, eh? the speech bubbles, the humour was there, they dumb stick figures and they just weren't visually seductive or interesting. And he failed out. And he said, oh, I said, oh, it's just it's just high school. Don't worry about it, you know. It's no good drama. And um, so he went to art, he went to the New Zealand Academy of Design or some private art school in Queen Street. And for one year, all they did was life drawing. No computers, no hardly any lectures, life drew every day for a whole year, life drawing. So at the end of a year, he could literally draw anything. Horses, cows, birds, people, of course, buildings. He could draw what he could see in seconds perfectly. So he had that foundation of drawing. The second year of their study, they only went there for two years, only tertiary education for two. The second year, all they did was computers. So Photoshop and animation got right into that wave. I'm talking early 2000s now. Late, late 90s, early 2000s, yeah, early, early, late 90s, late 90s, yeah. 
uh, came out of there, went to October, did the little dancing yoga pot on the steps. There was an ad on TV with little legs and arms, just little yoga oh, yeah. jump. He did that because he could draw and animate. Uh, what's his name? Weta? Weta Workshops. What's his name? Was just evolving, just getting the big thing going. Hook leaves October, could draw, could animate, goes right into Lord of the Rings, does all this stuff. So he's riding the wave, but he could draw, had his intentions, failed out at Talmud College. Within a year or so, he's having weekly uh, Facebook time with Spielberg and all these guys, planning the next ones. Tintin, he worked on Tintin. You see his names and the credits on Tintin, did Tintin, Peanut, Lead Peanuts, did all the visual graphics for Godzilla lately. Lives in Hollywood, married a girl in New York, lives in a flash apartment in Hollywood and LA. <laughs> Works in Hollywood as a recognized uh, maker of stuff. Failed art at high school. So I think that's a nice, shows a nice trajectory of a, of a person uh, who comes from a good foundation of, um, of drawing practice, uh, deciding what field he's going to work in, in this case, digital graphic, whatever word you want to call it nowadays even, changes every year, uh, rode that wave, got involved with um, Weta, got involved with Hollywood, what made him good? I believe what made him good was probably two things. You'd have to talk to Jesse about it. He's a good, you know, he's a great, great kid, but man. But from the outside, looking at his, at his practice, one year of life drawing did him no harm whatsoever. And um, being at the right place at the right time, making yourself at the right place at the right time. Mm. So, he, he left October to Weta. You know, he didn't stay at October in Auckland. He went to Wellington. He went to America. You know. So he positioned himself physically after he did his drawing, after he got his intentions, positioned himself and he drove it. I came back from Melbourne basically with nothing and um, met Buck. Buck failed me in art school. I got ten out of, one out of ten for one big project. And I failed art at college with Buckner. Because I was a failure, I think he remembered me now. He remembered me for some reason. But I got 96% for school C art and 98% for UE art. But I failed at the school. <laughs> so I argue with them all the time. He's a terrible teacher sometimes, but just right. I remember going into his art classes and we go, oh no, one of those lessons. And I know he'd be doing his own stuff, which he was smart, he would be doing. But he'd handwritten in chalk on the blackboard pages on Impressionism from some book and then fill it over. And we had to sit there quietly for an hour and copy what he'd written on the blackboard into our art books. <laughs> the bell would ring and we'd leave and he would sit at his desk doing his art or <laughs> <laughs> so, so Buck, Buck and I had, had an interesting relationship back in the day. But, you know, loved it. Put me into the one room. Get a phone call from Deborah White. Oh, I'm back. Come back to New Zealand from Melbourne, James. I remember meeting you as an She wasn't interested in me, wasn't good enough, like most art dealers. But I remembered your name. And, uh, you, what are you doing? Oh, well, I'm just setting up. I need some artists. Show me your latest work. Oh, I've got into 
straight away got into the daily planet. You know? So it's just just at the right place at the right times and stuff. Like that. Mm. And how do you, how would you define success for yourself? Um, I could lie, which is dangerous to talk to artists because oh, you should be being authentic, <laughs> being free, <laughs> all that bullcrap stuff. But I think in reality, um, it's hard. Don't, uh, from my experience, uh, what was the question again? I'm trying to think of a heavy answer, but I don't know. How do you define How success for yourself? Yeah, just success, yeah. Oh, another terrible word, being happy. I mean, um, the, the happiest times I've been in my practice has been when uh, things out of my control have happened, and I'm meaning right down to my hand, fingers making a mark on the surface, things out of my control, through to events around me out of my control have come together somehow at a point of time, be it an exhibition opening, being at the end of an exhibition when you see a whole lot of red stickers up, which is a validation financially and respectfully with the value level because you recognize that people have recognized you mm. and valued you to the point to invest money in that. It's extremely rewarding. So there's that reward factor. Now, if you're going to get into dealerships, that's a whole other big podcast. But I think, um, uh, to me, I've been blessed with very good dealers. I only work with main two, Paul Nash and Matty Clark at Paul Nash and um, Deborah White at Whitespace, Deborah and Ken White. Good, good dealers like... Deborah, for example, um, have experience behind them of decades of art, and, and she established the Art Dealers Association in New Zealand, set up the Auckland Art Fair, did all those sort of things. She's an amazing woman. Will look after you and guide you like a marriage, and, and those dealers I've never had written contracts with. And it's like a marriage, we've been together working off each other for a few decades, a decade or so with Paul Nash. And, from pencil gallery times and, and white space for decades now. Good dealers really help you too, and that can be rewarding. Yeah. From working alone to your own solo mm -hmm. to getting that reward at the end can be very satisfying and you feel quite successful to working with other people like your dealer. Like when I got into the notion of, um, of doing um, manuscripts and illuminating things, Māori, like Europeans would illuminate their sacred marks. I was trying to illuminate my sacred marks in the same sort of genre. I didn't study it though, but I practiced it again very viscerally without research. But my dealer saw that and said, oh, we're having a show in London. We've just finished the big Genesis drawing. So let's show it in London. And because you found out the reason I got it, it's a long story, but I've got into it because my ancestor 
well, I found out was a Benedictine monk from the 14th century who did one of the best illuminated manuscripts. Wow. And it's in Oxford Library, rolled up in goatskin. It's medieval. And it's, and it's the, you know, the Psalters were illuminations of poetry and songs. So Songs of Solomon, uh, Proverbs, Psalms were all called Psalters and they were illuminated. And one of the best one, East Anglican one, from the Middle Ages is in Oxford Bodleian Library. Mm-hmm. That was done by Robert Ormsby. Mm-hmm. And I was going, wow, that perks your curiosity and wonderment. So I'm doing a native response to my northern ancestor. Fuck about that. So they're showing my marks in London. And, oh, you should come to London, James. Huh? Bloomsbury's right there beside the, the museum, the British Museum. And Bloomsbury. So I don't have bloody money to fly to London just to muck around on a show and be nice to people. <laughs> oh, no, no, you should come. I said, well, you're going to have to um, help me. <laughs> he goes, oh, you're right. Just tell your story in a quick email. I'll get back to you. This is Deborah White talking. So I sent an email. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. I said, I'm a proposal. And, and within a week, I've got return tickets to London from the British um, British Council, sponsored my flight to London a bit. So I go to Oxford. I go to Bowdoin Little Library. I hang out in London for six weeks, you know, because I didn't want to stay there for a week for the show. So I stay there six weeks, go to Oxford, Bowdoin Little Library, do all this research. See, that was a great reward for me. Did sell the big drawing, sold it later on when it came back to New Zealand. But my success was, you know, going to the Bodleian Library, the oldest tertiary library in the world, you know, at Oxford University. You know, hanging out there doing research with the British Council. Um, you know, that's very successful and sustained. I made about sixty, seventy thousand dollars off the initiative, that whole body of work. I sustained my practice for about four years. Uh, put that dealer put petrol in the tank for that to happen. So that was success and sustainable for those four years. Nothing sustainable or not. All you need is a pandemic, and you suddenly got nothing. <laughs> if your work can't sell online, which I, which mine is very difficult to sell online because it's very nuanced work. It depends on light and lighting, and there's so many layers in the drawing. It's very hard to sell work that isn't as graphic as normal on the internet because people, especially if you get to a level where they're investing thousands, they want to touch it, smell it. Yeah. The artist, they don't do it online. Yeah. So to be sustainable, uh, it's a tricky thing, eh? And uh, it is that, sometimes it is that coincidental thing, you know, of, of just, you know, so there you go, if Deborah White had never rung me, searched me out, wanting artists, which is rare for a dealer to ring up an artist and want them, uh, unless they're really good. And I'll, I was nothing at the time, really. So just a contact I met once in Melbourne. And then that fed into it, you know, for decades of practice now. She sustained me that way. Yeah, so. Uh, like I probably get back to it originally, just get your. Get your drawing practice down, whatever you're going to do, you've got to be able to draw if you're doing art. Uh, you've got to be able to um, get your, your curiosity, your intention underway, what field of practice you're going to sit in, and locate yourself in that field. 
Mm. It's been a bit tricky because I've been committed to New Zealand, so sure, I've been if I was young, free, and onto it, I'd go to New York or somewhere in Paris, go back to the Antilles in Europe, whatever. But um, I'm sitting out here in New Zealand, doing New Zealand stuff. Mm. So that's the steps you take to get there, I think. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Um, but drawing again, just to finish off drawing though, it's key, it's like if you're a dancer and you don't have a body, all you can do is uh, dream about it. You know, you've got to have your body to, to, to show the form on the stage or, or, or in the theatre wherever you're dancing. Sure, you can be a choreographer, you could be in a wheelchair and get someone else to dance for you, but you can't just walk into choreography. You have to have a notion of that, of the weight and balance of the body to do that. You know? So is, is the body as important to dancing as, as manipulating form is important to sculpture? Drawing is fundamental to every extension of it. Or, or what do they call it? It extends the lifetime of an idea. Drawing is memory, and we are memory. And humans are memory, and drawing extends the lifetime of a memory. Whether it's a quick sketch or a masterpiece, it extends the lifetime of that memory. And uh, I think if you're not standing on a foundation of, 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 of drawing, you're in trouble. It won't sustain you. Someone will catch you out in the end. Godwin will just turn away and walk away from you. <laughs> well, my master would. My master would because he, you're not interested. You're just a pretend artist. <laughs> Sorry, what was the question you were going to ask? Um, so any last words of wisdom? Oh, just um, be good. Be good. Be good at what you do. And I think I've given you a few steps on how to be good at what you do. <laughs> you've got to be an artist. Otherwise, you've, you're one of the masses and you're not an artist, are you? Artists, artists stand out. And, um, and to stand out, you've got to be good at your practice, just like sports. And um, to stand out, you've, you've got to be good at your practice. So just bloody work hard. And that's probably the step three or four. Mm. Some extent, out of the work does come the work. And, and I suppose the big umbrella is work, just to work hard, draw every day, spend hours drawing throughout your life and lifetime drawing. Out of the work comes the work. There's, there has been times, admittedly, I've made it sound very, what's the word? Very, very structured. This is step one, this is step two, step three, and if you stuff up that one, you're in trouble. That's the word, pragmatic. If you stuff up step one, you're in trouble. I think, I think sure, if, if you work your ass off, you can be good at anything. You know? If I suddenly decided, well, I don't know about an all black right now, but if I decided to be something sporty, I could just eat well and practice hard, and I'd probably be good at it because I've got two arms and legs and I'm fairly well coordinated, so I could probably do wakarama like you or whatever, you know? But um, if I wanted to, work hard. And same with that. There have been times when I've entered the studio, I have no idea, so I have those discipline rituals of um, doing, uh, making sumo-link, doing Enzo circles, just to stretch my mark making, and then by getting dirty and doing marks, will come a wonderment and, and an intention and then a whole body of work and then money to survive ultimately, you know. Mm. I was just going to say uh, that work does come to work. Mm. Um, oh, there was a little emotion I was going to say with that. You go into the studio and... Oh, 
it's like writers. You often, I've seen it, must be true. I've seen it in movies. Eh? They often say, you know, the guys are the typewriters. You know, just just type rubbish. Just yeah. not even English. You know, just just bang away, and suddenly a sentence will come to you in a story. You know, by practicing, aren't they? You know? Yeah, you really just have mm. to show up every time. There's another way of saying it. showing up. It's the luck. Show up on the field of practice. And yeah. Run around at night. Thursday night, even though the game's on Saturday, you know? yeah, yeah. we'll sweat it out under the lights at the paddock on Thursday night. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's, it's a weird principle, but it's that's that you can't ignore that. Eh? Mm-hmm. You can't sidestep that, and you might bluff it for a while. Mm-hmm. But sooner or later, you'll be found out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so, one of the final questions that I ask all of my interviewees is to which is not an academic or unphilosophical or artistic question at all. Oh. But it is um, just a random question I just started asking people. Good. Um, so if you were in a um, zombie apocalypse and you had the choice of one particular weapon, what would that weapon be for you? Oh, I, um, <laughs> gee, that's it. My son gave me a hell of a book on how to survive a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> Kimmy gave me Christmas a few years ago. What the hell? Uh, uh, I never read it. Um, I would, zombies coming in to me, I would grab a, <laughs> a nuclear blaster zapper and probably kill myself accidentally. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's the first thing that comes to my brain. <laughs> Guns would be useless and knives. <laughs> You could have like a magical pencil, you destroy all Yeah, I don't think I'd draw my way out of it. I couldn't do <laughs> I don't know what to do with my pencil. <laughs> well, I do draw with plates and hair dryers and sandpapers and polishes, but I don't think that would help a zombie. <laughs> no, nah, good nuclear blast. Good nuclear blast. Kill myself as well. <laughs> Um, well, thanks so much for talking to us today. We really Pleasure. appreciate you inviting us into your home for this great podcast. Um, just for the people on the interweb, where can they see your stuff? Uh, Whitespace, uh, Paul Nash. Uh, I do have a very old website that I haven't touched for literally 12 years. That's out of date, but at least I've got my name on it. Um, JamesOrsby.com. Um, Done a few covers to books around, black marks on the white page, uh, photo, uh, uh, yeah, just um, on the internet. On the internet. Do you have Instagram or Facebook? Uh, I do have Facebook, yeah, I do have Facebook. I really put my own work up though. Yeah. Hardly use Instagram, although I, I use it. I don't really post up much myself. Do you use Facebook quite a bit, yeah, Facebook? Okay, wow, thanks. Pleasure.